You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. It seems to me that the center of any true neighborhood would have to be an act of love. Think, for example, as I've been going back and reading the great literature, of Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh's neighborhood is the hundred-acre wood, and one day the characters in the forest decide it's time to go on what they call an expedition to find the North Pole, to find that axis which marks the center and orients all of life to it. The only problem is none of them can remember really what the North Pole is. I did know once, only I've sort of forgotten, said Christopher Robin carelessly. It's a funny thing, said Rabbit, but I've sort of forgotten too, although I did know once. I suppose it's just a pole stuck in the ground. Sure to be a pole, said Rabbit, because of calling it a pole. And if it's a pole, well, I should think it would be sticking in the ground, shouldn't you? Because there'd be nowhere else to stick it. Yes, that's what I thought. The only thing, said Rabbit, is where is it sticking? That's what we're looking for, said Christopher Robin. And off they go looking, a queue of animals through the woods, on an expedition to find the North Pole. And they don't know what it is. Well, they haven't traveled very long before they get that, as Pooh says, little rumbly and they're tumbly, and it's time for a little something special. They're provisions, and they sit down along the side of a stream in the grass and make preparations by washing up. Uh, a ritual that Eeyore doesn't believe in, and yet Rue, as uh, little baby Rue, is leaning over the bank trying to prove that he can wash his own hands and his own face without anybody's help, suddenly spills into the river himself. And unaware of his danger, as he drops from pool to pool via these little waterfalls, he is impressed with himself and wants everybody else to notice that he is swimming, as he thinks. But Pooh was getting something. Two pools below Rue, he was standing with a long pole in his paws, and Kanga came up and took one end of it, and between them they held it across the lower part of the pool. And Rue, still bubbling proudly, look at me swimming, drifted up against it and climbed out. Did you see me swimming, squeaked Rue excitedly, while Kanga scolded him and rubbed him down. Pooh, did you see me swimming? That's called swimming, what I was doing. Rabbit, did you see what I was doing? Swimming. Hello, Piglet. I say, Piglet, what did you think I was doing? Swimming. Christopher Robin, did you see me? But Christopher Robin wasn't listening. He was looking at Pooh. Pooh, he said. Where did you find that pole? Pooh looked at the pole in his hands. I just found it, he said. I thought it ought to be useful. I just picked it up. Pooh, said Christopher Robin solemnly, the expedition is over. You have found the North Pole. He found that thing, in truth, it's that act of love that centers this particular neighborhood. A small thing, but profound indeed. And I think we could say of Winnie the Pooh at this moment, he is an accidental hero. And it is just to this sort of accidental heroism that we find Jesus Christ is inviting you and me tonight in our text, the book of Acts. And I want to uh, open uh, up here with you to Acts chapter 8. 
verses 26 through 31, which you'll find on page 892 of the Pew Bible. Let's take this out, and if you're able, stand up with me, and we'll read aloud God's word in honor of the one who inspired it. This is verse 26 down through 31 there. It's kind of breaking in the middle of the paragraph. After we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, Do you understand what you're reading? He replied, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. The kind of hero that we find in Philip is what I would call an accidental uh, evangelist. Now, as soon as I say the word evangelist, you, uh, like me, may think, you know, I don't really aspire to be an evangelist. And we're just sure that behind the original language for the English word evangelist in the Bible is some meaning like slick-haired person on TV who asks for money. You know, or someone who's gifted at engineering awkward social situations that actually end up pushing people away from Jesus. This is not the kind of evangelist that Philip proves to be. Because Luke, the author of Acts, makes it very clear in this chapter multiple times that where, where Philip goes, joy follows. There's a trail of rejoicing, even in this scene. And that's the kind of evangelist that I hope to be. And if you want to join me in that, then let's look at three things that we find in Philip. First, Philip has accidents that become assignments. Second, Philip responds to nudges from the Holy Spirit. And third, Philip is a guy who lives in such a way that he stumbles into grace. Let's look first at the, uh, the accidental evangelist who is on assignment. The accidental evangelist is somebody who is on assignment. Now, Philip is referred to once in the book of Acts at the end, in chapter 21, as Philip the Evangelist. So you might think he saw himself as an evangelist, but I seriously doubt it. In fact, I, I think he's referred to as Philip the Evangelist to distinguish himself uh, from Philip the Apostle, who was one of the twelve that we read about in the Gospels. No, Philip was not an apostle. He didn't follow Jesus around. He didn't know Jesus physically in the flesh, most likely. He's just a man, a regular guy, a layperson, lived in Jerusalem. He worshipped Jesus Christ. and He never signed up to be an, an, an evangelist. In fact, what he signed up for, we find in Acts chapter 6, is kitchen duty. They had a problem in Jerusalem as they were feeding so many widows and there was a disproportionate distribution of food. And, 
And someone said, uh, hey, we got a problem. And the apostle said, well, go solve it. Why don't you appoint some, some people that are filled with the, the spirit and wisdom? And they picked seven people. And the first person in the list is a guy named Stephen. The second person in the list is our own Philip. I signed up for kitchen duty, not to be an evangelist. I thought I could help. I used my gifts. There was a problem, so I volunteered. What does that sign me up for? I'm no evangelist. And yet, there is a crisis in Philip's life. And so often, the best of us emerges in a crisis. And that seems to be what happened in the Jerusalem church. It's a crisis. One day, the first of these seven is attacked. There's a kangaroo court, and he is stoned. Stephen, the first martyr in the church. And being number two on the list, Philip starts to go, you know, I'm thinking this might be a nice time to see the world and get out of town. And so he does. He leaves. But not only Philip. Actually, all of the followers of Jesus left Jerusalem. And we read about this in Acts 8, chapter 8, verse 1. That day, Luke tells us, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And all, except the apostles, were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. So, they take to flight. They're refugees. They're not leaving Jerusalem out of missionary zeal, out of conviction. They're not remembering that Jesus had said, you would be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in all Judea and Samaria. <laughs> no. They're running for their lives. It's not safe for them anymore in Jerusalem. This is a crisis. But it is this crisis that the Holy Spirit uses to further the good news of Jesus. I mean, what looks like an accident to Philip is actually something that God will use to bless Samaria and even the remotest ends of the earth, as we see in a moment. And furthermore, God has Philip now in an unlikely place, Samaria, first, and, and then on an unlikely road. Where we read, uh, we, we picked up the story in that Philip is on a road, travels from Jerusalem down to Gaza. Think of modern-day Gaza Strip in southwest Israel. goes right through into Africa. And Luke doesn't want us to miss the fact, in case you're not from this area, that this particular road is a wilderness road. It doesn't mean it cuts through the forest. It means it cuts through the desert. As you get further from Jerusalem, it begins to thin and become desolate and lonely and deserted. And so this is an unlikely place to find any human being, let alone somebody who might be interested in hearing good news. And yet there's a surprise for Philip. In verse 27, we have that surprise word that so often occurs in the New Testament, translated oftentimes, behold. But here it's just translated in our Bible, now there. And, and so here's Philip in this wilderness road all of a sudden saying, look, wow, there is a person. It, it, it shows that he's on an assignment in the most unlikely of places. And so are you. And so am I. I think it's important for us to recognize that the things in our lives that we see as accidents, whether that's being a cancer survivor or going through a bad marriage, maybe struggling with an addiction, these things have a way of relocating us in life. And God, who never lets anybody get into a dead end, who's always acting redemptively in our lives, finds a way to take that location and turn it into a mission assignment. 
So when we think about our neighborhoods, and remember, I say our neighborhood is just where you live your life. It might be a physical neighborhood like Maple Leaf or Muckleteo, or it may be an office complex or a quad on campus. It may be a, a high school. Whatever it is where you live, God has put you there. It's not that you chose to live there. He has put you there for a reason. And I believe he's saying to us, there's someone in your neighborhood that I want you to go and love in my name. Someone needs you, and I am sending you to that person this week. I'm not sending the pastor. I'm not sending the deputies. I'm not sending your small group leader. Wouldn't that be nice? I'm sending you. You're the only one pre-positioned as an agent of love. So the accidental evangelist is on assignment. That's the first thing we see in Philip. But the second is that the accidental evangelist responds to a nudge. Did, did he notice that? Do you notice how Philip gets on assignment? It's not that he, he hears a little tape playing that tells him, here's your mission, this is what it's going to be all about, and this is why you're on it. He has no idea. All he has is a nudge from the Holy Spirit. See, we read in verse 26, an angel says, get up and go. That's the nudge. It's the Spirit sometimes says, get up and go toward the south to the road. Now, verse 29, the Spirit then again says, go over to this chariot and join it. And then in verse 39, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. Don't you wonder what that must have felt like? What was it that Philip was experiencing that these words describe? I mean, on, on their surface, frankly, the words to me are kind of foreign and frightening. It's like I, I picture halos and angels' wings and teleportation, and I don't know what to make of it. But I think I'm getting thrown off. I think I'm getting confused by the fact that Luke is using theological language in order to interpret ordinary circumstances. See, that's what Luke is doing all the way through this book. Remember, he's eager for us to see that it's not us driving the mission of the church. It's the spirit of Jesus. And so every chance Luke gets to give a theological interpretation to ordinary events, he'll do it. But I think Luke is describing kind of from God's side of the curtain what's happening. But I wonder what would it be like to be on Philip's side of the curtain? I mean, what did these three experiences seem like to him. Keep in mind, in the Bible, many times, angels are mistaken for human beings. They look like you and me. Good-looking people, obviously. An angel simply means messenger in Hebrew and in Greek. And so it may very well be that there was a person who comes up to Philip and has a message. And yet, Luke wants us to know an angel has come and given him this message. The Spirit says something, but I think it's more of a nudge. Let me give you four other examples and see if you can see that the Spirit has a lot of different ways of communicating to us, and they may feel very ordinary to you and to me. Take Acts 10, for example. We read, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to Peter, look, three men are searching for you. Now, what do you think that was like for Peter? A vision. I think it was a dream, and Peter's reflecting on a dream. And yet the Spirit, through that reflection, is speaking to Peter. Acts chapter 13, jumping ahead, we have Christians in Antioch, and they're worshiping, we read. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Now, how do you think the Holy Spirit spoke in that instance? 
I'm guessing people are gathered for worship just like we are. And someone had a suggestion. And the gathered assembly said, that sounds true. Uh, that must be a prophetic word. And we're going to attribute it to the Holy Spirit. See, so it just sounded to them, I think, like a, a good suggestion. But they knew it was more than that. In Acts 15, we come to the Jerusalem Council, a huge knockdown, drag out fight in Jerusalem over the inclusion of Gentiles, non Jews, in the church. And after going at it for a while, they finally resolve this thing, and here's what they write as a letter uh, out. They say, uh, uh, It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. In other words, what was that? Well, they had a really good conversation about this, and they made a, a decision. They reached a consensus, and they're, they're affirming that the Holy Spirit is the one. Who guided that conversation. And then finally Acts 16. We read Paul and Timothy were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. To speak the word in Asia. Now it could have been that the Holy Spirit spoke audibly to them. I, I just don't know that, that, we ha, that we have to understand it that way. It may very well have been that uh, someone got sick. Or there was something that prevented them from turning down a road east towards Asia. My point in all of this is that don't let Luke's theological language keep you from understanding that the Spirit has a way of communicating to you and me that oftentimes seems very, very ordinary, and yet it's not. The key thing isn't how He communicates to us, it's that He communicates to us. See, see Jesus Himself had said, it's actually better for you if I go away. Jesus Himself said, you will do greater things than I've done. And the disciples had to say, well, what? how could that be? But think about it. Jesus could only guide any group of people at any given point in time when he was physically present to them during his earthly ministry. He could only be in one place at one time. But Jesus would know that he would go up to the Father and sit on his right hand and pour out the Holy Spirit on all of his followers. And then at that moment, being spiritually, personally, and actively present in each believer's life, he could direct and guide and empower every single one of his people, wherever they were, at the same time. That's greater. That's better. And this is what the church is beginning to experience in the book of Acts. And this is what you and I will experience as well. God will nudge you. Have you learned to recognize those nudges? Have you cultivated within you a kind of a sensitivity to that, a responsiveness to that? It's an important thing to learn. I'm, I'm struggling with it. Let me give you two examples recently in my life. One was uh, just less than two weeks ago. I'm riding my bicycle on the Burke Gilman Trail. And there's a teenager on the side right next on the, right on the edge. And his bike is there. I don't see any problem with the bike, but he's just sitting there. And I, you know, zoom past. Of course, I ride very quickly. And I'm, I'm, I'm zooming past, and I'm thinking, I wonder if he's okay. Should I stop and ask? And I got that, you know, I, I bet the Spirit is nudging me. I bet God is saying to me, George, go back there and ask him if everything's okay. And you know what I did? I kept right on riding. <laughs> I'm not proud of that. But, I, you know, I do know that God nudges me, and sometimes I just, you know, I'm, it's, it's 100 yards now, Lord. It, you know, somebody else behind him is able to, you know, upstream will probably be able to get your nudge and help him out if he needs help. And I missed it. But, you know, uh, I didn't miss it. 
just a few days ago, actually, this week. I'm jogging through my neighborhood, as I do every morning, and um, I hear a siren. It's an ambulance, obviously. It's coming inbound into my neighborhood on a side street, and I think, I wonder what that is. So my first reaction is curiosity, but then I felt a nudge. Something inside of me said, George, start praying right now. And so I did. I said, Jesus, I pray for the EMTs. I pray for the house they're going to. I pray for the family that's there. I I pray for whoever's in trouble, safety and health and peace. That was my prayer. And, you know, you've done that, too, before when you hear a siren, haven't you? You don't ever know what that's all about. But i got to tell you, I shared this little story uh, uh, this morning at 8.30, and someone came up to me, and he compared the time and the place, and he said, you were praying for me. I went down with a heart, a very serious heart problem. I was lying on the floor, and I knew I was dying. This is what someone said to me today in the narthex. I could feel my consciousness going away, and I began to try to recite Psalm 23. You were praying for me. I thought, wow, okay. I think I'll pay attention to those nudges more often. You never know. You never know sometimes what God is doing when you join, when you come alongside. It may seem so small to you, but it may be life-saving for somebody else when you respond to those nudges. Now, you may say, how do I know it's not just a bad burrito, George? You know, I eat out a lot. And it's, you know, the, the truth is, you don't know. It could, it, maybe it's not a nudge. Maybe it's just your lunch bubbling up. The only way you'll ever know is if you respond. Right? You can respond to a bad burrito. I don't think you do that much harm. But if you find out that really it is God at work, as I did this morning, you'll begin to cultivate a habit of responding. And you'll develop a sensitivity like a mother has for a newborn baby. And pretty soon she can pick up its signals and knows what that little gurgle means or that raised eyebrow. Or a dancer as she learns to read her partner's signals, the glance of an eye. So we can develop over weeks and years the ability to respond to the Spirit of Jesus as he leads us through life. This is what Philip is doing. The accidental evangelist responds to a nudge. He's on assignment, he responds to a nudge, and finally the accidental evangelist stumbles into grace. Almost as if by accident, we'd say. I mean, here, here he comes in, in, into the presence of this man. Um, he's an Ethiopian eunuch. He is the minister of finance for Ethiopia. Massive power and privilege. Right-hand man of the queen, in charge of all the financial resources. I mean, he's, he's obviously wealthy. He drives his own Lexus uh, chariot, and he can afford to buy a scroll. And, uh, but all of his wealth cannot mask his heart. And, and the scripture here allows us to see beneath the surface a man who has deep spiritual hunger and a brokenness that's profound. We see that in the two words, Ethiopian eunuch. To, to know that he's an Ethiopian is to know that he's spiritually hungry. Because why? Why is he here? Well, he's come from Ethiopia. By the way, it's more the modern Sudan. Ethiopia was an ancient uh, people who lived between the As- Aswan and uh, Khartoum along the Nile River. Dark, smooth-skinned people, tall, a uh, very powerful nation. But it's a thousand miles, a thousand miles away from where Philip meets him. It took him five months, most likely, to get up to Jerusalem to worship. 
to know this God, to be in the presence of this God about he's heard what? Rumors? There's a spiritual hunger. Ethiopian. But there's also a deep brokenness. Eunuch. I mean, we don't really know the story behind that, but we know it's probably not a happy one. The eunuchs were oftentimes slaves who'd been mutilated, people who'd been abused, captive warriors, oppressed people. And because they've been emasculated, they've been elevated, but they've been deprived of so much, not just their physicality, but deprived of having a family, family life, children, offspring. And so whatever his story is, we know that there's a story of deep brokenness. And here he is looking for grace. He's reading the scroll that he's bought. He's returning home, possibly in great disappointment. It's very likely that a eunuch who tried to convert to Judaism at this time was not able to do so. And that he found himself excluded from the fullness of worship in Jerusalem. And he's on his way home now. And he's scanning. He's probing. He's pouring over this text going, what does it mean? There's something profoundly inviting and something deeply troubling about this. It's good that he's reading Isaiah. In Isaiah, he would read, Go, you swift messengers, to a tall and smooth people, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. That's Isaiah 18. It's a promise for the Ethiopians. It's in Isaiah also that he would read, Do not let the eunuch say, I'm just a dry tree. In other words, fruitless, no children. For I will give you a name better than sons and daughters. How could this be? And he's reading now, his eyes have fallen upon this passage from Isaiah 53. Like a sheep he was led to slaughter. This one upon whom all iniquity has been laid that we might go free. And it's at this point that Philip comes up and says, you know what you're reading? And the eunuch says, I have no idea how I could unless somebody helps me. And Philip has the incredible privilege of being able to just to simply point him to Jesus. He's, it's Jesus. It's the one about whom there is profound good news. It's the one who brings grace and peace into all of our lives. Do you know that the word evangelist is not a religious word originally? It's not a Christian word at all. It comes out of ancient empires. When there was a new ruler, he would send out evangelists throughout conquered lands and say, there's good news, we have a new emperor, who brings peace. That's really what Philip's doing. He's just coming along someone and saying, there's peace for you. You could be at peace because God loves you. And he sent Jesus to bear the sins and the brokenness of all of our lives. So uh, Philip gets to stumble into grace. And this is why joy follows him. Joy follows the Ethiopian as he goes on his way. But what does this mean for you and for me? Well, friends, it means this. It means, first of all, that God has assigned you to your neighborhood. You're there with a mission. And he knows what it is. You don't know what it is. But he's going to nudge you, secondly. This week, each of us is going to get a nudge from the Holy Spirit that says you go alongside that person. Some large or small act of love that God wants to do through you so that you get to participate. And this is the third thing, in his grace. You'll stumble into grace. A friend of mine uh, this week told me that he had lived next door to somebody for 30 years and they had never gotten to know each other. Isn't it funny how we can do that? 30 years. The guy was a successful businessman, but he just recently had a stroke and he was walking by the street and my friend and his wife were at the breakfast table and they saw him. They said, they said you know, it's funny that we've, we've never gotten to know. We've prayed for this family, but we've never really 
built a friendship with them. And his wife said, I, I felt a nudge to go and talk to them. And so they did. A couple days later, they just walked across the street and they knocked on the door. And they said, hey, we'd love to get to know you a little bit. Sorry it's taken us so long. And they were invited in. They sat and enjoyed a conversation. And my friend said, you know what? It wasn't much, but it was enough to say we care. I think it was enough to say Jesus cares. We didn't have to say that, but our presence was all that was needed to say, you're okay, you're loved. And think about the contrast and how many people need that simple gesture today, how much that would mean to you or to me in the crisis of our lives. I just read the newspaper, the blogs, with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Maria Shriver and how people are throwing stones this week and absolutely ridiculing because they look like they have life together. Come on. They're just as broken as you and I are. And, and they don't need our judgment. They need someone to cross the street and knock on the door and say, you're okay. You are loved. I care. And there's somebody else who cares of great significance. There's good news for you. Many of us were able to go out and serve our, our neighborhoods yesterday. And I know many are still doing so, but it was a great privilege. Highlight of the year for me was to drive around to different sites and watch what you were doing and watch how neighbors, your neighbors, not UPC people, were coming alongside and serving with you. In one location at Magnuson Park, wetlands, the mission was to remove uh, scotch broom which I guess is an invasive species, and it's bad for allergies, by the way. I couldn't get my small group to go down there, but I was visiting. And the woman who was kind of hosting the group, I guess she works for the park. She's a naturalist, young woman named Miriam. And I asked her, so, Miriam, how often do you do this? And she goes, well, I've been working here a couple years, and we've never been able to do this. She has this huge smile. She says, I'm just so glad you all are here. And as I was leaving, I heard this. One of our small group leaders had gathered the group of the group together for a little orientation at the beginning. And he said just simply three things. He said, let's focus on three things this morning. And Miriam's standing right next to him. He says, let's focus on how much we are all loved. One. And two, let's focus on loving others. And three, let's get the sagebrush out. That's the, 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 the scotch broom out. And at that moment, Miriam pipes up and she says, that's awesome. She says, I want to be a part of that too. I want to be a part of all three of those. I thought, wow. See the opportunity we just had to stand next to someone and hear them say, I want to know how much I'm loved also. I want to be a part of a community that's willing to give its life and love for others. And I want to get the scotch broom out of this place. <laughs> well... You're going to get a nudge this week. It may seem like a real small act of kindness. But I tell you, no matter how big or how small that piece of wood that you hold in your hands, as silly as Winnie the Pooh's pole, insofar as you and I are participating in the work of the risen Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit, that wood in our hands may prove to be nothing less than the very wood of the cross of Jesus Christ the very center of life itself that orients all of our neighborhoods and this whole world to him. Who knows? You might just be an accidental evangelist. Accidents happen. Let's pray. God, we pray for this accident in our lives. We thank you for the truth of good news. Jesus is the truth. 
And he has come to embrace us. And you have not waited until we got our lives in order. It would never would have happened. And you have not waited to send us before we are ready and adequately equipped. That's never going to happen either. But you have sent us in the power of your Holy Spirit. You actively speak in us and through us as we witness to the presence of Jesus. Thank you for this gift. We ask your blessing on our tithes and offerings. These are just a small part of what we lay before you as we lay our whole lives before you. But whether we give the widow's might or the king's fortune, uh, may these funds go to give witness to your love in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.